Welcome to another episode of Climate Change Unfolding. Towards the tail end of the last episode about narratives, a phrase I said just kept bouncing around my head. Story worth telling was the phrase. And at the time I was talking about what the world looks like if we do engage in a powerful way with sustainability. What do our lives look like? Can we clearly picture how much better our lives would be in a sustainable world? And Realize the prevailing dialogue is one of personal sacrifice, but if you dig deep into what sustainable world looks like and what would happen if we took powerful action, there are a lot of things that are actually better about it, that are good for quality of life, for happiness and for justice and equality, and especially if you stack it up against what happens if we don't act. A sustainable world is a better world than we live in now for a number of reasons. But it's not just that. It's a better life for the people living in it too. And I don't think many people see that. And and that's why that throwaway phrase that I said, it resonated. It's a story worth telling, at least in my opinion. So I've taken a brief interlude from Engaging the Masses series, which I'll return to, um, to tell a small part of that story worth telling. And on a very specific theme one that sits very close to my heart. I'm going to talk about nature in its majesty and its infinite complexity and how it's trying to solve our problems for us. It's the build-up to the 2015 World Freestyle Kayaking Championships in Canada and I was in full training mode, living a simple life, eating, sleeping, kayaking. And I was on Lachine Rapids in Montreal late spring. It's an enormous river. It's really crazy to describe. It's so big, it's hard to even imagine. It drains the entire of the northeast of North America, and it's the spring melt. And at that, at that time of year, it's running at 12,000 tonnes of water per second. So it's like a moving ocean. And I'm out for a morning training session. I have a beautiful section of standing waves, and I'm the only person there. So I'm all alone. And it's majestic in its size. It feels a bit like I'm dancing with the power of the water. I have a great surf and eventually I come off the standing waves and wash downstream and the morning light's coming through the trees and I'm just appreciating the moment and the water is sparkling and this big gust of wind comes out of nowhere and picks up this huge cloud of blossom from a nearby island and the trees on the island and it just covers me like <laughs> it's like a I don't know a pink and white snowstorm and I remember just being absolutely jaw struck I was so completely taken aback by the moment Nature had just sucked me in and I felt so connected and part of that moment. I wasn't just watching nature, I felt part of it. And it wasn't the first time nature struck me like that, but it, it did lead me into a whole sequence of realisations. And I'm going to use all my willpower here not to go off on a tangent about mindfulness and present moment awareness and how it affects pretty much every aspect of our day-to-day -day experience. <laughs> I want to stay on the topic of that feeling I felt so powerfully in that moment about feeling like I was part of nature. And there's this flawed logic that seems to be everywhere in our society and a notion that there's nature and then there's us, the humans, like two separate things, like nature over there in the countryside or the wilderness or whatever, and then us here in the cities or in our homes, you know, as single standalone human beings living our lives. But that separation, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. So where, you know, where is this line between nature and us? You know, the plants are 
It's pretty much universally, undisputably part of nature. And clearly, the oxygen they release into the air, the air picks up and returns water to the plants, the air and the water are clearly part of this complex cycle and system of nature that goes on around us. And we don't last too long without the air, right? You know, we absorb oxygen into our bloodstream and eventually into our cells, and the air surrounds us through every moment of our lives. And on the average sized person, the air puts about 18 tons of pressure on our surface area, <laughs> which is pretty wild. You know, we'd, we'd quite literally explode if it wasn't for our atmosphere and the air. So <laughs> there's this, I guess, <laughs> my point is, which is hardly all that controversial, is that we're part of this incredibly compl complicated, interconnected web of life. And we can't put nature over there and us over here. There's no invisible barrier if we pollute the air, we're polluting ourselves. We breathe in the toxins and the pollutants and they lodge in our lungs. And if we fill the oceans and the soils with microplastics, then we, we shouldn't be really that surprised and disgusted when microplastics are found in our food. You know, Most human feces, by the way, now contain some microplastics, which is kind of creepy. The parrot's in the roof and it again. <laughs> and we are nature. We're mammals living, eating, drinking in a natural ecosystem. There's an enormous psychological benefit for this reframing in our minds as well. You know, the more we feel connected and a part of nature, the more we feel at peace. You know, when we surround ourselves with the natural world or what we would typically think of as the term nature, we feel more grounded, more peaceful, healthier and better rooted in who we really are. It's, it's where we belong. You know, for 99% of human history, we've been living in a much more obviously integrated existence with the natural world. It's where we've evolved to be. I think, <laughs> possibly going to hover on esoteric now, <laughs> I think deep inside, nature fascinates us. You know, we have this wonder of nature who isn't blown away by the incredible BBC David Attenborough series that he produces. And they, they ultimately showcasing the wonder of nature. And the air too, we should reawaken a bit of the wonder and look at the air with new eyes. There's magic in the air. If we just pay attention to it, the mists and the fogs and the shifting clouds and the way the wind moves in the trees and the rainbows. And you know, when we go outside and there's fresh air, it's everywhere. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm definitely getting esoteric now, but yeah, a bit woo-woo. But it's, it's not just hippie esoteric woo-woo stuff here. <laughs> the benefits of nature and the outdoors on, me on mental health is well documented in science and psychology. Okay, to jump, topic, to jump slightly in spirituality, also across all religions and cultures, nature plays a central part in the spiritual teachings. Interconnectedness with nature, the present moment and the world around us, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, all of them talk about it extensively. And the more ancient spiritual traditions too, nature's in the central theme for their worship. The rivers, the mountains and the forests, they all have their own spirits. You know, European paganism, Native American beliefs in African religions too, all developed independently, they all build around that respect for the natural world. Even in modern secular mindfulness practice constantly refers to the natural world. I guess what I'm getting at is that a deep connection with nature is everywhere, except for in our modern materialistic capitalist driven culture. And I think our well-being suffers by distancing ourselves from the natural world. And I think we do well to get a little bit more connected. 1986, Northern Ukraine. Chernobyl 
power station has a full nuclear meltdown. It's the worst nuclear disaster in history. It shocks the world. 4,700 square kilometers declared a dead zone. For years, nobody went there, except in you know, very controlled circumstance, full protective suits and all of that to investigate the site. And after the initial devastation and the shock, there was this really unexpected side effect. With no human interference over the subsequent years, something really incredible happened. Nature took over and it thrived. You know, elk and all sorts of other plants and animals rapidly expanded in numbers. Bison had almost completely gone from the region, but they returned and apex predators came with them too. Wolves, raptors, and even bears thrived. I say <laughs> thrived, I mean, some of them died of cancer and there was a much higher than average amount of mutations and deformities, given it was, after all, a nuclear meltdown area. But despite that, Populations of wildlife almost across the board have grown exponentially, which is amazing, you know, and fauna too recovered to an incredible degree, reclaiming areas humans had previously cleared, trees, you know, bushes, vines, moss and undergrowth, you know, taking over the streets and houses and the gardens and the fields. So it really fascinates me. And there's a few really interesting parts to this story. First, it's pretty clear <laughs> from that that us humans are worse, much worse than a large-scale nuclear meltdown. <laughs> it's pretty wild and slightly depressing. <laughs> the other thing, which is a bit more encouraging, is we didn't need to do anything for the natural habitat to recover. It did so quickly, and it did it on its own, despite the added challenge of being a nuclear meltdown area declared a full dead zone. The only thing we needed to do was leave it be. Something else we can take from that also is that it wasn't just huge industry and big agriculture keeping nature back. It was actually everyone. All the gardens, lawns, communal places constantly being cleared, chopped back, weeded, pesticide, cut. And as soon as that stopped, the magic returned. Which brings me on to, I suppose, one of the most simple and at the same time magically complex solutions to the, mag to the climate change crisis. All we got to do is simply stop screwing with nature. <laughs> nature wants so badly to capture carbon out of our atmosphere, but in every corner of the planet, humans are working tirelessly to stop it. <laughs> we humans are relentless with actually amazing resourcefulness and spread across the planet, working every corner of it to minimize nature's ability to capture carbon out of the atmosphere. It's just mind-blowing, our ability to touch every part of the world, you know, the rivers, mountains, ice caps, to deserts, the tundra and the jungles and even the vast oceans, all those environments, we're working actively to stop nature capturing carbon. <laughs> but it goes beyond that, the rapidly diminishing wilderness. So it's also in our gardens and our parks and our fields and allotments, on the roadsides and in the terraces. It's actually... When you think about it, quite an incredible accomplishment to keep all of that nature in check so broadly and spectacularly. It's, <laughs> it's quite a human achievement. It's the sort of thing I could imagine Donald Trump bragging about. <laughs> Bringing it back a little bit more local then, if you leave your garden alone for a year, what would happen? That manicured lawn that we religiously cut, is it? 
really what it's cracked up to be. You know, what it actually is, I'd argue from a slightly jarring sort of offensive kind of way, is a nutrient draining, carbon releasing, monoculture, biodiversity desert. <laughs> or put a different way, it's our own con- contribution towards this souped up biodiversity nuclear meltdown that human beings are. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? Something so familiar that I've been doing all my life and then knowing all that, you know, is it really worth the effort to chop that grass? <laughs> knowing by doing it, we're helping to do our part in our own small way to drive along ecological collapse, push climate change forwards and to hold back the recovery of our amazing natural world that I hold in such regard or we hold in such regard. So what if instead of those monoculture lawns, we let a bit of wild back into our gardens and our cityscapes, you know, into our workspaces and our public spaces? That's an integral part of solving this climate crisis. And I think it's going to bring us joy. And I already talked about the wonder of nature and touched on just a few of its benefits. It's very possible with very little effort to let that magic surround us again. We all know intuitively that the wonder of nature or ancient woodland or a riverside ecosystem or whatever is is more beautiful than a monoculture grass lawn right (laughs) it's hard to argue that so but culture without any real logic tells us the thing to do is have a lawn with open soil flower beds with a few well-controlled and human-defined flowers it's like When you think about it objectively and zoom out a little bit, it's a bit like a throwback legacy to 18th, 19th century when, you know, control and suppress the natural world, you know. (laughs) So if you want to, okay, right, you know, so if you want to play football or something, then then obviously you need a bit of an open space. And so there's a place for grass somewhere in our living spaces. And also see that having some sort of way of moving around in those spaces is important. But if you own a plot of land, Even if it's only a tiny back garden, imagine a winding forest path that meanders through a natural recovering environment where you could escape the hustle and stress of your day-to-day and and appreciate the butterflies and the ladybirds that you've given home to. The birds and the nests and the hedgehogs and the blackberries and the apples or whatever it is in your native corner of the world that would be creeping back in to that natural habitat. What about this potential to help us deal with the overwhelm and climate anxiety, the worries of what's happening in the world and how powerless we feel. Most people who think about this topic feel that sometimes, how powerless we feel. Wouldn't it be nice to go and sit in a tiny little forest clearing of your own making, watching the bees buzzing around, the birds chirping, the insects busy, their hustle and bustle, and kind of just appreciating the complex interconnected mix of bushes and shrubs and plants and trees all capturing carbon around you. You see the fungi or fungi, fungi? <laughs> don't know how to say this word, that word, breaking down organic matter, turning it into soil, locking that carbon into the soil. And animals too, whose habitats have been squeezed so badly in previous decades, finding respite in your little patch of wild, maybe even making a home there. <laughs> That's got some magic and in my mind has a wonderful therapeutic value as well. Here on a similar and connected topic, you know, your workplace, which would you rather be in? One with trees and bushes and birds and wildlife immediately outside, plenty of natural light with greenery inside too, pot plants, window boxes, all sucking in carbon, spitting out oxygen. A place you can feel like you can really breathe. 
or a closed-in box office with neon lights and grey walls, no windows. It's kind of obvious. So I guess what I'm hoping is that as a culture, we redefine beauty in our living spaces and start to appreciate the wonder and the magic we feel by having a bit more wild around us. And when we feel part of the natural world, we feel more grounded and more peaceful. And it's a wonderful thing knowing that we are, for at least doing our own little part, working alongside the natural world. We're supportive and aligned. We're letting it do its thing. And it gets busy help solving the problem, the key problem of our time, for us. So letting the wild back into our green spaces is better for us, better for our mental health, our quality of life. But it also does amazing work to address climate change. And I wanted to talk a bit more about how, because for me at least, I didn't have a full picture on how it worked until I really started digging into this more. So I've, given this is a climate change unfolding podcast, I thought sharing a little bit on this, I found it really interesting, so I hope you will too. So the photosynthesis thing, of course, I got that really. You know, trees and plants capture carbon, store it in their leaves and trunks, and then it's no longer in the air. But the complexity of a healthy ecosystem working in its intended form and how that maximizes the capture and storage of carbon, I really didn't understand that fully. Now, firstly, as biodiversity increases, so does the soil health. And soil is one of the most amazing stores of carbon. It's got such huge potential for helping us solve the climate crisis. You know, in, in short, the way it works, how once carbon is stored in organic matter, it dies and, and it's broken down by fungi and bacteria. Some of the carbon is released back in, um, into the atmosphere as a chemical reaction, but um, a lot of it remains stored in the soil. So year after year, a depleted soil keeps capturing and storing carbon. Which reminds me, by the way, of another very practical thing that seems so ingrained and I grew up doing and my parents still do and I just didn't even think about it that much at the time. Bonfires. <laughs> Why do we burn all our grass and our leaves and our branches? And If you're going to use it for heating your house, great, that replaces other much more damaging energy and that's brilliant, you know, but just making bonfires in the garden to get rid of all of these piles of branches <laughs> is madness. When we do that, we choose to throw all of that carbon back into the atmosphere instead of our, into our soil. And in doing so, we contribute towards global warming and we end up under, uh, with undernourished soil. <laughs> so the leaves also, by the way, serve a purpose of creating ground cover, which prevents open soil releasing carbon into the atmosphere. And so we further le leach the soil by clearing the leaves. Instead of collecting it, piling it up and burning it, we could, we could just leave it, allow the organic matter to decompose. <laughs> Sorry, the birds. <laughs> Squawking in my roof. We return carbon to the soil, allow the fungi and the ecosystems to behave as it's designed to, with all sorts of knock-on positive benefits. You know, well-nourished soil and insect population imbalance. The soil's supposed to be alive with bacteria and fungi and worms and insects, and they need that organic matter to thrive. Why do we do it? Why do we burn all this stuff? Well, I suppose it's just based aesthetics, you know. We don't like the look of a bounce on the ground, I guess. Or, But if we, if we really can't stand the look of it, we can just pile it in the bottom of the corner of the garden somewhere and let the worms do the work down there if you, if you really feel like you can't deal with this sort of um, organic matter breaking down in, in the soil. Okay, back to the soil, because I've talked a lot about it, but... I haven't quite underscored its amazing capacity to help 
with the climate change crisis. This is a quote from World Organic News podcast. Quote, if you take two-thirds of the world's agricultural land and you increase the soil carbon by just 2%, you capture all the carbon we've released since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> With the regenerative agriculture, you can do that 2% in just a couple of years. <laughs> End quote. And <laughs> the techniques are pretty simple too. It's really not that difficult. Mostly it's about not plowing. <laughs> so it's not expensive. It's actually cheaper. You know, and that's astounding. You know, that needs shouting from the rooftops. We could reverse all of the carbon that we've released just by relatively small changes in two-thirds of our agricultural land. I've heard other quotes too about soil's incredible power to capture carbon and store carbon, but you, you get the general gist. Our soil is our silent ally here, and we're not giving it the respect it deserves. And the wonderful thing is we don't need to invest anything or do very much at all. We just need to stop being destructive and step back and let the ecosystems do their work. <laughs> but the magic doesn't stop there. Let me give you a few more examples of the weird and wonderful ways that natural ecosystems work well as carbon sinks. I'm jumping ecosystems here to give you a broad example. So whales in our vast oceans predominantly plankton. So you'd think when humans almost hunted whales to extinction, the plankton levels would increase and, and capture more carbon. But it turns out that didn't happen. As whales decreased, so did plankton. And researchers found that whales facilitate carbon absorption in a number of ways they hadn't previously realized. First, their movements, especially when diving, tend to push nutrients up from the bottom of the ocean to the surface, where they feed the photoplankton and other marine fauna that's, that's sucking carbon through photosynthesis. And Another way they capture carbon is by producing fecal plumes, which is, from what I can gather, just a posh way of saying poo. <laughs> and the poo introduces nutrients that um, support marine plants in the area. And these plants use photosynthesis, again, which absorbs the carbon, and again, enhancing carbon capture process. And that same bit of research showed that 80 whales can absorb the same amount of carbon as 208 acres of U.S. forest. <laughs> That's pretty mind-blowing. 208 acres, that's a huge area. Another cool example, jumping ecosystems again. Wolves in Yellowstone National Park are like a classic and fascinating example of rewilding and an intervention by humans that help restore ecosystems and recover them to their original form. So wolves have been hunted to extinction in the park for, I think, about 70 years before they were reintroduced. And overgrazing was rife. There were way too many deer and Despite human interventions and attempts to keep the deer numbers in check, it wasn't really working. And when the wolves were reintroduced, even though the numbers of wolves were very small, immediately the deer started to behave differently. They'd avoid the open spaces, especially the valleys and the gorges where they could be trapped, and those areas quickly recovered from overgrazing. And the riverbanks, instead of being eroded, large open soil ended up as bush and shrub and open soil is one of the worst things with carbon it slowly leaks carbon into the atmosphere and leaching the soil as well so and it's also really bad for erosion so overgrazing stopped shrubs came back trees recovered quickly and carbon was captured in large areas of the park again and with tree and shrub roots on the riverbanks the erosion and the rivers dropped significantly too so there was a lot less sediment which meant 
less meandering, straighter, more stable course for the river. And it literally changed the course of the rivers and all sorts of amazing other trickle-down effects on other parts of the animal and, and bird ecosystem. <laughs> really quite cool. Um, so I'll leave a video that goes into more details of, of all the wonderful knock-on effects um, on my website, Climate Change Unfolding, slash episode 15, um, and maybe in the show notes as well. So um, it just illustrates that mostly we have a very simplistic way of looking at these complex ecosystems, and we don't really understand them fully, but it's amazing when we restore them what they have the capacity to do. Final thing I want to say on this topic of how a bit more wild can con contribute to reducing carbon. There's another key thing, and it's food. Apple trees and blackberries and mangoes or nuts or whatever's native to you, instead of buying food that's been covered in pesticides, driven, shipped, priced, packaged, marketed, and all sorts of other things that have footprints, you, you pick it from your garden. It's free. It's fresh. There are no chemicals. It's healthy. And it's actually negative emissions because that ecosystem is drawing down carbon. That's a total win-win-win. And I think it tastes so much the better for it too. So the theme of this episode is bringing a bit more wild into our lives. And rewilding is a great phrase. And I just want to clarify a little bit on rewilding because it's a pretty broad term. People seem to define it in very different ways. And it can be massive scale, like Yellowstone National Park I was talking about, and um, it can be tiny, and there, there's different types of it too. So passive rewilding is basically doing what happened in Chernobyl, but, with, but without the nuclear meltdown. It, you know, it's pure, simple, leaving nature to it and seeing what happens. Active rewilding is probably more common in gardens and living spaces and parks and so on. It's where you let nature do its thing, but you monitor and you intervene for certain desired outcomes. And, how you manage it depends obviously on your ecosystem that you're in, but also your desired goals. So often active rewilding is making up for previous human influence. For example, introduced invasive species without a natural control in the environment is a common example. Let's say a shrub that takes over, you need to clear it to let the indigenous trees take over. And once they have and taking proper foothold, then it, then it should be able to control its, its natural state. Other Things where you might get involved with active rewilding is food production, for example, as a common outcome goal. Let's say you do let nature do its thing, but you might have a few more apple trees than more normally typical. And regenerative agriculture farms engage this sort of practice. They integrate farming into these ecosystems. It's not perfect wilderness, but it's so much better for the environment than regular soil leaching, carbon emitting farms where you're pouring leaching chemicals onto the, the soil. So... You can actually even optimize for aesthetics. It's not very pure rewilding. And so some, some rewilding purists might shiver at the thought of it. But, it's, <laughs> but if it's in your immediate living space and nature seems to only want brambles, <laughs> for example, much better to plant a few indigenous trees and shrubs um, and let the nature build around those than to return to a monoculture grass that you have to cut every week. So I'm no expert in all of this, obviously. Exactly, you know, I don't have a, a deep background in any of this. And exactly how you go managing that active rewilding, I don't know. <laughs> but you, you know, certainly once you, your attention's on it, then you can learn a lot more yourself. But it's a fascinating subject, and th there is 
interesting couple of podcasts that I've found uh, informative to help me learn about the soil and the part and it, it plays in the climate change conundrum. Um, World Organic News is called. It's run by an Aussie guy, who, um, John Moore, who plays a lot of attention to soil health. And, and John also has launched a new podca- podcast called Regen Earth, R-E-G-E-N, Earth, which is about trying to encourage and guide small-scale regenerative agriculture and little plots of wild, bringing a bit more wild into our living spaces and, and a bit more food into our small-scale gardens, quite literally <laughs> bringing it in from the ground up. You know, it's all soil-based orientated. Um, so I'll leave a few specific episodes that are more relevant than the others in the show notes and on my website. If anyone's interested, you can begin more there. To wrap this up then to a core message for the episode, there's magic in nature and we're part of that magic. There's no boundary between the natural world and us. And once we appreciate this natural wonder and how interconnected our existence is with the world around us, our our lives are actually better for it. And as a natural progression from that perspective, we can step back our constant destructive interventions and allow the natural world to recover around us and to capture carbon and to to thrive. And while it does, we can take heart in the fact that our changing behavior has contributed directly towards that recovery. And instead of being in a constant battleground, working really hard to keep nature away, we're working alongside the amazing web of life with the natural world that we're a part of and with our interests aligned and that's a good way to live and I guess the thought of that gives me heart. I don't own any land myself but the more I think about all this the more I think that that's got to change at some point. I can see how magical and therapeutic it would be for me so the closest I got to a patch of land was outside my little hut on the Hairy Lemon Island and but that's now about six meters underwater, so that's a bit out of question. So my ask is, let me live vicariously through you guys. If you feel inspired enough to let a bit of wild back in to some land that you have, even if it's only a couple of square meters in your garden, send me a picture before you do, and send me a picture in six months or a year or two years or whatever. <laughs> that's something I'd love to pop into my inbox once in a while. That would bring me a lot of joy. So bring a bit more wild into my life as well. So my email's at sam at climatechangeunfolding.com. I'll put some pictures on my website, climatechangeunfolding.com, of, of some examples of rewilding living spaces and stuff that I love around me here in Uganda that kind of part inspired me for this episode. And I'm also, by the way, this week going to send out some pictures on the newsletter this week of the latest in the trees and bees. You can sign up on the website, my website again for the newsletter if you want to stay in the loop for that project and some other stuff. So finally, there's a question about keeping up to date on the podcast and what my schedule is and how you, how to know when you're going to be releasing a new episode. <laughs> yeah, well, all podcast wisdom says I should make it predictable on a schedule. <laughs> but life doesn't allow for that. I'm a father and a business owner and I've got a million projects going on and I've got, I've got to basically fit this around my other things. So I just can't commit to a schedule. I don't want to say I can and then not do it. But the only thing I can really say on that is just subscribe and then on a podcast player or whatever, and then you'll get an update or a download or a notification or whatever when I do manage to get my stuff together to, to get recording. So, uh, Or you can follow me on Twitter, at Sam James Ward. I normally tweet when there's a new episode, but so that's the best I can offer you at this stage. But thank you so much for listening. 
Go get a little bit more wild in your life. <laughs> this is Sam Ward, Climate Change Unfolding. I'll see you next time.